Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Wonderful. Well, um, let me tell you first of all what's happening next week, shall I? Uh, next week, um, uh, we have two, two how questions. We're going through this how on earth sermon series, and we're looking at different how questions. And next Sunday, uh, in the morning services, the two morning services, uh, we're, we're thinking about how to forgive well. Uh, and then in the evening service, the 5.30 service, we're thinking about how to date well. Uh, so you, next Sunday, have got a choice which one you want to go to. Maybe you want to go to both, come morning and evening, whichever you want. Um, but that's what's happening uh, next Sunday. But today, uh, we're thinking at all our services across the day, um, how to care for the environment. How to care for the environment. And as we come to this topic of the environment, let me just say I'm here uh, not as some sort of eco-warrior, uh, not as someone who's always voted green, because I haven't. Uh, not as someone who you go, oh, I'd expect them to say that because that's their big sort of passion in life. No. Uh, if you like, I'm here, I'm here as your pastor. Uh, and I'm here really uh, as looking to, to help connect what does the Bible say about this with the world that we live in. So let me pray, and then we're going to look at it together, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for this world. Uh, thank you for your creation. Lord, would you help us uh, to know more about how you want us to relate to this world? Lord, we pray by your spirit. We pray and ask that you would guide us, that you'd direct us, that you'd help us. And we pray that in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Well, first of all, let's, let's be real. Let's not be deluded. Uh, there is a problem. The planet is warming. Uh, the Earth's resources are depleting. The amount of waste is increasing. The amount of biodiversity is decreasing. And of course, so much of it is interlinked. A larger world population means more fossil fuels used, more waste to get rid of, and so on. And so really the question is, how should we respond? And I guess particularly, what has the Christian faith got to say distinctively about all this? Let me, to start with, let me give you sort of two alternative responses from two people who are fairly well known uh, and not specifically Christian. And they're Greta Thunberg and Jordan Peterson. 
Okay, here's what they would say to you if they were speaking to you. First of all, Greta Thunberg speaking. She was at the World Economic Forum a couple of years ago. She said this. said, solving the climate crisis is the greatest challenge that Homo sapiens has ever faced. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear that I feel every day. I want you to act as you would in a crisis. I want you to act as if the house is on fire because it is. Or alternatively, this is Jordan Peterson actually speaking to church leaders, and he said this, you are churches for God's sake. Quit fighting for social justice. Quit saving the planet. Attend to some souls. That's what you're supposed to do. That's your holy duty. Do it now. Before it's too late, the hour is nigh. Now, those are both to the extreme, of course. You might call them, if you like, you might call them the panicked response. So that, you know, your house is on fire, this is a major emergency, Uh, do something about it, the panic response. And then the passive response, you know, forget about saving the planet, it's not that important, just save souls. Now I wonder which of those responses is closer to your own response. I've had people come up to me in the church family uh, to want to discuss their own eco-anxiety Uh, In fact, last year, uh, there was a study that found 73% of UK 16 to 24-year-olds say that climate change has negatively impacted their mental health. So that is the panicked response. But for me, I think more often, I have been tending to go closer to the passive response. You know, I've been offended by a climate change campaigner coming up to me and declaring me an enemy of the environment for daring to have four children and for traveling by plane to Australia to visit all of Susanna's family who all live in Australia. You know, I've sympathized with the vicar of the Tron Church in Glasgow when COP26 was taking place a couple of years ago. And the vicar of the Tron Church, he put up a big banner outside his church uh, during uh, COP26 and it said, the world's most urgent need is churches preaching Christ crucified, not climate change. And yet, whichever end of the spectrum we have a tendency to head to, what I would love us all to do today is to look at what it is to have not a panicked or a passive response, but rather to have a plankful response to the environmental crisis. Now you're saying, what on earth are you talking about, Jago? Plankful, what do you mean? Um, Let me explain. I remember um, quite a few years ago now being told by one of my heroes, John Stott, uh, when I used to work at All Souls Langham Place uh, quite a few years ago, and I remember talking with John Stott and him saying to me that whenever... Whenever you face some sort of issue, there's some sort of issue you're wanting to think through. He said, the best thing you can do if you've got some sort of issue to think through is to think it through by analyzing it through the four planks of the Bible. He said, you've got to analyze whatever this issue is through the four planks of the Bible to try and work out how to approach this issue, whatever the issue is. And the four planks of the Bible, he said, the four planks are firstly creation. So that's Genesis 1 and 2, the start of the Bible. Second plank is the fall, so uh, Genesis 3, how sin entered the world. Uh, The third plank, which basically takes up most of the Bible, is redemption. Uh, So the promise and fulfillment of Jesus coming to redeem us through his death on the cross. And then the fourth plank, he said, is the new creation, the end destination, where we're heading, Revelation 21 and 22 at the end of the Bible. And so just as a preview, before we go through each of those four planks, here I think is the problem 
with those two extremes that I've just painted for you. The, the passive response, Jordan Peterson, the passive response ignores planks one and four. It ignores creation and new creation. It just says the Bible story, it's simply we're sinful, the fall, and souls need saving redemption. That's it. Two and three, forget one and four. Whereas the panicked response, Greta Thunberg, that is the exact opposite. It ignores planks two and three. It says the Christian story is that the world is created, the world is wonderful, and we must save the world. It's just creation and new creation, one and four, but ignoring two and three. And so rather than ignoring one and four or two and three, I want us us to think through what happens if we include all four of those planks. If we include all four of them, what does the plankful response to the environment look like? So first of all, plank one. Plank one, creation. Let's begin with being clear. Genesis 1 and 2, they tell us far less about when and how the world was created. And they tell us far more about who created the world and why the world was created. And the answer to who, well, it's God. God created the world. First verse of the whole Bible, Genesis 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it is a good creation that God creates. That repeated refrain through Genesis 1, at the end of each day, it says, and God saw that it was good. And then in our reading that Beth read for us, at the end of day 6, Genesis 1.31, God declares it not just to be good, but God declares creation to be very good. And he says it's now very good because humans have just been created. And we're made, if you look at verse 27, we are made in the image of God. We're made in the image of God. Now, we might be told today, we might be told to reduce, reuse, and recycle. And I think that is very, very helpful advice. But I want to encourage us, a more fundamental thing than that is that you and I, as humans, we are to relate, reflect, and represent. We're to relate, reflect, and represent because that is what it means to be human. That is what it means to be made in the image of God. We humans, we are made to relate to God, to connect up to God. We as humans, we are made to reflect God, to connect to others in God-like ways. As we interact with each other, we are to reflect God rationally, morally, socially, creatively as we interact with each other. And we are made as humans to represent God to connect down to this world, to connect to his creation, and we're to represent God to this world, to creation. That is what it looks like, those three arrows, red, blue, and green. That's what it looks like fundamentally to be human, to be made in the image of God. And so let's quickly just look at some of the verbs used in Genesis 1 and 2 that talk about how you and I are to do that green arrow. How are we to represent God to this creation? How are we to represent him to the world? There are four verbs that describe it. Just have a look at them. First of all, uh, Genesis 1 verse 28 talks about subduing the earth. Same verse, verse uh, 28, then talks about ruling over the earth. Then if you go on to Genesis 2, verse 15, it says there, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, third verb, and to take care of it, fourth verb. Now those four verbs, some of them, they have been misused over the years to encourage ecological disaster. 
So let's just understand what actually each of those verbs means. What does subdue mean? It's a strong word for sure. But really, that word, it means no more than the task of agriculture, of subduing the land as you grow crops. Uh, The rule over word. That is about God, God passing his kingly authority, his rule to us. It's about God asking us to represent him. So it's like a sort of delegated authority. God saying, you rule, I'm passing you the authority. And it's not sort of domination, but it is dominion. It is kingly rule modeled on the character of the kingly rule of God himself. We are to rule like God, as God would, with his character. Or the third one, uh, work it, work the ground. Literally, that word is to serve the ground. We're to serve it. Just think of Jesus. Jesus' kingly rule was about service, serving others, being the servant king. And in a sense, that is how we are to be with this, this creation, with this world. We're to serve creation. And then the fourth word, take care of it. In the Hebrew, it's got the idea of, of protection, of looking after something well. So if I was trying to summarize plank one, creation, what is it telling us? I would summarize it like this. I would say God has delegated authority to us, you and me, to responsibly steward his world. He's delegated authority to us to to care for his creation. Now, the, the panicked response, the panicked response makes the mistake of worshiping creation rather than worshiping the creator. The passive response just ends up worshiping our own personal pleasure. Now, we are to respect the world because God created it. But we're not to revere the world as if it were God. That's the first plank. How about the second one, the fall? If you you go to Genesis 3, uh, we see in Genesis 3 that that sin impacts all that it means for you and I to be made in the image of God. It impacts all three of those arrows. So in terms of our connection up to God, what happens? Adam and Eve, they get banished from the Garden of Eden. So that relating to God becomes broken. In terms of connecting across with each other, what happens? They start blaming each other for what happens. The, the, the reflecting is broken. And in terms of connecting down to the world, well, the ground is cursed and work is tough. There's thorns, there's thistles. The representing down is broken. Everything gets marred. Everything is broken. And as you head into the New Testament, we read of this same pain, this same brokenness. Paul speaks of it uh, for creation in Romans chapter 8. He talks about creation using really strong words. He talks about creation is subjected to frustration. It's in bondage to decay. It's groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Now the passive response to the environmental situation is just to be a part of the problem. You know, do yet more damage to God's planet through selfishness and exploitation, just increase the groaning. But you know, the panicked response isn't right either. And here's why. Because the panicked response says the main problem is because of that green arrow. It says the main problem is the the disconnect down between humanity and the world. That's the main problem. That's the fundamental problem, says the panicked response. But actually, the Bible says no. 
The Bible says the root of the problem, it's not the green arrow down, but the root of the problem is the red arrow up. The root of the problem is our disconnect between us, humanity, and God. We're a world that is out of kilter with its creator. And so plank two, the fall, what does that tell us? I'd say it's this. It tells us that we need to get right with God, the red arrow, in order to get right with each other, the blue arrow, and in order to get right with the world, the green arrow. How about the third plank that takes up most of the Bible, redemption? The passive response to the environment, the the Jordan Peterson response, if you like, would say, well, the fall is the problem. Jesus' death Redemption is the solution, the solution to saving our souls. And so the sort of physicalness of this world, it's pretty irrelevant. We don't need to worry too much about the environmental crisis. We can just ignore it. But just think about that a little. Think about it. Um, The friend of mine uh, called Dave Gobbett's written a great little book um, about the environment. I, I really recommend it. And in it, he says this. He says, nothing affirms the significance of this physical creation Nothing affirms the significance of this physical creation, he says, more than Jesus. More than Jesus. Jesus is God in human form. God entering this world. God getting his hands dirty. Jesus is the creator becoming part of his creation. Matter matters to him as he becomes matter himself. But the panic response doesn't get it quite right either. Now, this is dangerous what I'm about to do because I'm about to disagree uh, with the most popular person in the entirety of the UK, okay? Uh, Sir David Attenborough, okay? So this is, could be dangerous, but I'm going to try and explain this by disagreeing with Sir David, okay? So David has written this, or even said it, actually. He said this. He said, we are at a unique stage in our history. Never before have we had such an awareness of what we are doing to the planet. Fully agreed. And never before have we had the power to do something about that, fully agreed. Surely, he says, we have a responsibility to care for our blue planet, fully agree. The future of humanity and indeed all life on earth now depends on us. And I don't totally agree with him there. Because there is one saviour in this world. It's not you, it's not me, it's not even Sir David Attenborough. So yes, we do work hard at being good stewards of this world, but no, we don't need to panic. We can rest easy trusting that there is a saviour in the world and his name is Jesus. Now, please, please, please do not mishear me. I am not saying that we don't need to do anything to tackle climate change and biodiversity and the amount of waste and our our carbon footprint. We do. We desperately need to. But we do it as stewards of God's world. We don't do it as panickers who think that it's only within our power to save the planet. It's not. Jesus is saviour, not us. And please remember this. We live on a cursed earth. Genesis 3 tells us that. We live on a cursed earth. But actually, we also live on a covenanted earth too, Genesis 9, where after a flood, 
A flood where Noah has been told he has to bother to protect not just humans, it's not just humans in the boat, but he has to protect animals from being wiped out too. God cares for the whole world, not just humans. But after that flood, what happens? God says, never again will I destroy all living creatures. He says that the rainbow, the rainbow is an everlasting covenant between him and all living creatures of every kind on earth. So yes, it is true, there are all sorts of challenges with climate change, with sea level rise, with plastic in the ocean, but God promises that nothing will lead to us all being wiped out. You know that children's song, it is true. He has got the whole world in his hands. So this is what Plank 3, Redemption, tells us. It tells us that in Christ... Christ who is our saviour, our one and only saviour. In Christ we can know restoration with God, with each other and with the world. All three of those arrows, they can be restored in Jesus. And so finally, let's think about the fourth plank, where we're heading, the new creation. If our future... If our future is one of leaving this earth to be obliterated while we whiz off to heaven, then you can understand why people might have a passive view to the environmental crisis. You know, why bother looking after this world if it's just going to be destroyed? Answer, it's not. It's not going to be destroyed. This might surprise you, but when it comes to the eternal future, the Bible is far more focused on God coming down to earth than us going up to heaven. Think of what Paul writes about Jesus' return in 1 Thessalonians. He says this. He said, the Lord himself will come down from heaven. Think of what it says at the very end. Revelation chapter 21. John writes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It's about a God coming down to his creation, a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. But that doesn't mean we need to panic about the environmental situation. Because you know what took place for Jesus that very first Easter? Resurrection. What took place for Jesus, resurrection, will take place for us and will take place for this world at the end of time. Just as followers of Jesus, if you're following Jesus, we will be resurrected at the end of time. So too this planet will be resurrected too. We will be renewed, we'll be restored as part of a new and restored creation. And so that this, this new creation plank, the future, the eternal future, it tells us that our present actions now, in the here and now, should be in light of the eternal future. Take my, um, my favorite chair, which is here. And if you can see it, uh, it's seen better days, okay? This, this chair, um, it, was, it was made and created, well, the, the, the seat bit was the tapestry by my granny, okay? And um, she gave it to me uh, many years ago, just before she died, okay? And it was in good nick then. Uh, and since then, over the years, it has uh, rather fallen apart, probably due to my excessive weight, um, so that the, the chair is now pretty broken, okay? You can't really use it as a chair. Now, because you can't use it, because it's broken, does that mean I'm just going to throw it away? No. Now, why not? Why am I not going to throw this 
chair away that's broken? Well, two reasons. Firstly, because of the past. Because of the past, because of my love for my granny. My granny, the creator of this chair. Because of my love for her, I I don't want to throw this away. But it's not just because of the past that I'm not going to throw it away. It's also because of the future. Because there will be one day soon, when I get organized, that I will take this to a furniture restorer and they will restore it. They will renew it. They will sort it out. And you see, here is the chair and it's broken and it's of no use. But I'm not going to throw it away. I'm not going to discard it because of its past, but also because of its future. And it's exactly the same with our broken world. And for that matter, it's exactly the same with our broken bodies too. It is important what we do with this world, caring for it, looking after it. It's important what we do with our our bodies, caring for them, looking after them, and thinking through fitness and sex and all these kind of things. It's important what we do with them because their destiny is not extinction. We're not going to throw them on the trash heap. But rather their destiny, our bodies, this world, their destiny is resurrection and renewal. So how do I summarize this plank full, all four planks, how do I summarize this response to the environment rather than a passive or a panicked response? I think I'd say this. I think I'd say, for those of us here, and if we're saying, well, I tend towards the passive response, I want to encourage us instead to be purposeful. To be purposeful. You see, part of our worship of God, who has created all this world, part of our worship of him will be seen in our care of creation, reflecting our love for our creator, just like I want to reflect my love for granny with this chair. You know, as individuals, there are going to be different actions that each one of us might take. Relate to God, reflect God to others, represent God to the world. That's what it fundamentally means to be human, to be made in the image of God. But one part of representing God to this world will be to reduce, reuse, recycle. One very helpful diagnostic tool that I found is from the World Wildlife Fund. Uh, They have this environmental footprint calculator to see what your own environmental footprint is and how you can reduce it. We need to be purposeful. As a church, we've been designated a bronze eco-church. We use First Mile for waste to have a wide variety of recycling options and a zero to landfill. Our electricity here at HTC is on a green tariff. With Revitalize 250, our building project, we've not gone for the cheapest option, but we've gone for what would be best environmentally. So air source heat pumps, for example, we need to be purposeful. Nationally and internationally, different people will have different views on how to encourage a reduction in fossil fuel use, but it is striking that those who contribute least to climate change are likely to be the ones who suffer most in this world from rising sea level, from rising temperature. Governments switching from fossil fuels to renewable forms of energy is the most significant need. We need to be purposeful. And personally, I think it's worth us asking, what is Jesus' command to love your neighbor 
What is it, that command, to love your neighbor, what does that mean in this context? And I think it must mean and include loving those who come after us. Those people in the future who don't have a voice regarding our decisions in the present. Now that idea, it won't just be about the environment. It could be all sorts of things, giving people a voice who, who, who might uh, come after us. But loving our neighbor must include giving a voice to the voiceless. So purposeful, be purposeful rather than passive. And then finally, for those of us more tending to be panicked, a panic response, I want to encourage us, let's be hopeful rather than panicked. Uh, Greta Thunberg said this, she said, we can no longer let the people in power decide what hope is. Hope is not passive, hope is not blah, 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 hope is telling the truth, hope is taking action, and hope always comes from the people. And in so, so many ways, Greta Thunberg is right. There is a need to take action about the environmental crisis. But you know, she and we will always be disappointed if we look for our hope for the future to come from people. Because true hope does not come from people. True hope comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the final three or four minutes, what I want to do is I want to read a well-known New Testament passage that speaks of the hope of the gospel. And uh, if you've got your Bible, I'd love you to turn there. It's page 1182, Colossians chapter 1. If you've got it on your phone, it's just below the Genesis passage, so it'd be Colossians 1 as well. Uh, page 1182, Colossians chapter 1. And this passage in Colossians 1, Paul speaks about the hope of the gospel. And what I want us to see, I want you to take on board the magnitude of this hope, okay? This hope of the gospel is not just a hope for you and me as individuals. It's not even a hope that is for all humanity. This hope of the gospel, says Paul, is a hope for the entirety of creation. Let's have a look at it together. Page uh, 1182. Let me read it. Starting Colossians 1, verse 15. It says this. It says, The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. You see, when we start speaking about the hope of the gospel, I don't know if this is your case, it's certainly me. 
When we start speaking the gospel, generally I'll start by saying about a specific person's individual sin, our sin, the fall. That's where I'll start. I'll start talking about sin, the fall, the problem we all have, and then I'll talk, after plank two, I'll talk about plank three, redemption, the cross, that is the solution to our sin. And I'll say, you know, if you believe that, if you believe that Jesus' death on the cross is the solution to your sin, if three is the solution to two, well then, uh, come to faith in Jesus and come and be part of church. It's a great place to be. And come and be part of church and then do life for the rest of your life uh, connected to church whilst you live in creation, plank one, and you wait for uh, new creation, plank four. That's roughly what I will generally say. I wonder if you noticed as I read these verses in Colossians, Paul does not say that. Paul says the exact reverse of that. It's completely the other way round. Just look at where he starts, verse 15 to 17. He starts massive. He starts big, not just with individual sin. He is talking huge. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about all of creation. Look at what he says. He says, all things are created by Jesus and for Jesus. All things are held together by Jesus. He is talking huge. And then, having done planks one and four, then he talks about the church, verse 18, as his body. Then he talks about plank three, redemption, the cross, verses 19 and 20, if you look there. But look at how he talks about the cross. He doesn't just talk about the cross as where we as individuals know we receive reconciliation. It is far bigger, far greater than that. Look at verse 20, what does he say? He says, and through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And then finally, and only finally, we get to plank two, the fall, sin. Verses 21 to 23, you and me, fallen, sinful, alienated from God, we are the ones who can be included in that reconciliation. It is completely the other way round to the way we generally speak about it. You see, Paul says that it is that global view, that almost cosmic view, not just thinking about the individual, but that cosmic view, that is the hope that is held out in the gospel. And so as we, in a few moments, come to communion, as we come to communion this morning, as we remember Christ's once-for-all death on the cross, paying the price of our sin. I want to encourage you, let's remember this isn't something just, that just affects my little old sinful soul. It is far bigger. The cross is something that is literally cosmic in scale. It means the reconciliation of the entire creation to God. The cross, it is the means of us being able to relate up to God to relate across to others and to represent God down to this creation of which we are but a part. And did you know you could draw those three arrows, the red one, the blue one, and the green one? You could draw those three arrows differently. You could draw those three arrows as a cross. You could draw them as a cross. You see, because of Christ crucified, You and I are able to connect up to God, to connect across to others, and connect down to this earth. 